Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't uh, know me, my name is Cameron Purse. I serve at Canterbury Gardens as one of the young adult ministry leaders. Um, and it's a privilege to be here with you and, and be involved in this really uh, a great series on the book of Judges. Uh, if, you're, if you're new here or haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we've been going through this book of Judges, which is in the Old Testament. Uh, so you may not have heard it preached as often, but we here at Canterbury Gardens believe that the whole Bible is able to lead us not only to Christ, but also to teach us to be more godly men and women. And so that's why we're going through this book. And today's passage, I need to almost put a warning out for it, it's pretty full on. As most of Judges is, it's a pretty heavy passage. Um, But before we get into it, why don't I quickly pray. Heavenly Father, we just, uh, we want you to speak through this sermon today. We ask that you reveal yourself to us in the book of Judges. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that we'll be able to honestly reflect upon our own hearts I pray, Lord, that as a result of today, we may know you more deeply and love you and each other more deeply. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the great things about being Australian is we love the underdog. We love to cheer for the underdog. I don't think it's only an Australian thing. I think Americans and others like that as well. But particularly here, we love it. We love to get behind the underdog, the unexpected hero, I mean, you see it in our movies all the time. Think of Lord of the Rings. There's some big Lord of the Rings fans here in this section. But Lord of the Rings, who's going to save Middle-earth from the hordes of orcs and all other things? Of course, two little hobbits. The smallest and most unexpected people you could find. They're the ones. And we love it. We get behind it. And in the end of three movies that are ridiculously long, we see that they do it. For you older people, maybe one for you is Rocky. I remember Dad saying that's where he took Mum on their first date, to see Rocky. And who, who, doesn't, who doesn't love Rocky, the, the South poor Philadelphian, the left-handed hero who gets this one-in-a-lifetime chance to beat the heavyweight champion of the world? And he almost does it, and we love it. That music, dun 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 oh, don't you just want to start working out? We love the unexpected hero. We love the unexpected hero. And as we come to today's passage, we're going to see something very similar. We're going to meet some unexpected heroes. But just before we read through this passage in Judges chapter 3, I just want to set the scene. We saw that this book is really recording Israel's history of after they've come into the promised land, God has said to them, I want you to drive out all the nations that are in the promised land. And what do Israel do? They fail. They fail to drive out these nations. But not only do they fail, they actually begin to become like the nations around them. They begin to compromise and be exactly like the nations they were trying to drive out. They fail to be a separate and holy nation and instead mix with them. And so God says, I'm going to not drive them out anymore. I'm going to leave them there for your testing to see whether you will obey me or not. And we see this in verse 3 of chapter uh, sorry, verse 4 of chapter 3. It says that they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. And then what happens? Verse 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So we get almost this setup of instant failure from Israel. 
God leaves the nation there for their testing. And what do they do? They begin to marry into the other nations. They begin to compromise and become like them. And this is where we're at. This is what sets us up to meet our first judge, to meet uh, this, I guess, really first passage uh, of this cycle. So we'll read from verse 7. We'll go through here. What does Israel do? Here's what it says. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Been practicing that all week, by the way. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over the king, so the land had rest for forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And so what do we see in this passage? We firstly see an expected result. An expected result. Israel, because of their compromising, they sin and do evil in the sight of the Lord. This is no surprise as you read the passage. You've seen all along that it was setting up for this failure, and that's what they do. Verse 7 says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it actually builds on this more. It gives two specific things they did to explain this evil. The first one in verse 7 is that they forgot the Lord their God. Israel forgot the Lord. They forgot the one who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, the very one who had given them this identity as a nation. The only reason they could be in this land was because God had given it to them. And they forgot him. But I think we need to clarify this, because as we read this, I think it's easy to think that forgetting him probably meant just like, you know, kind of when we forget keys or forget something else, it, just, it wasn't in their mind. But I don't think that's what it's talking about here, because the, nation, the generation before this one was faithful. They would have told this generation about Yahweh. They would have told them about the miraculous things that he had done all the works that he had done on their behalf, they would have known about him. They probably would have been able to say to you things about Yahweh. So I don't think it's they forgot them in this sense. I think it's they, they forgot the Lord in the sense that they forgot what God was like. They forgot what God was like. They didn't have a personal understanding of who God was. And their view of God began to be mixed with the views of God of those around them. They may have had the ideas in their mind. They may still have said that they served Yahweh, but they did not. Because you see, they were in the midst of a culture with a million different ideas about God and a million different practices based off of those ideas. And as they blended with the culture around them, so did their idea of God. And Judges deliberately shows us that the Ark of the Covenant, the Scriptures were not present. They were not engaging with God's Word. They were not hearing from the commandments. And so their idea of God, their idea of Yahweh, began to change. And so this forgetfulness then leads to the next step that verse 7 points out. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. 
their forgetfulness led to their rebellion. Their forgetfulness led to their rebellion. And they begin to bow down to these gods. And we heard from Nathan last week how terrible these gods were. These gods were primarily to do with fertility and sex, and they did all kinds of terrible acts to appease these gods, including sacrificing their children, engaging in temple prostitution, all these terrible things. And Israel began to bow down to them. Their forgetfulness led to their rebellion. And what does God do as a result of this? Verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. So he sells them into a foreign army. God was angry with their sin. He hated this rebellion. They were doing the things that he specifically told them not to do. But can you see the progression here? Their, their forgetting of what God was like led to them trying to search for God in other things. And then their rebellion led to their slavery. They thought they could find hope, joy, and fulfillment in things other than God, and it only led to their slavery. And this is, of course, what happens. When we stop being mesmerized by who God is, when we start to begin to be amazed by other things apart from God, these things happen. And it would be foolish of us to, to keep going through this passage without asking ourselves these questions. Judges forces us to ask these questions of ourselves. Are we also forgetting the Lord, not just individually, but as a church? And really, this is in a, a question for the positive. How are we remembering the Lord? Some questions to think about might be, how are you learning more about God? What is God teaching you about himself in the day-to-day life? Is your life about a relationship with the living God, or is it more about doing the right things in the Christian world? But perhaps, like Israel, has your view of God changed from the view of the Bible? Has it begun to blend with the culture around you? And this could be two ways. Maybe your God isn't very serious about sin. Maybe your God doesn't really compel you to change your life completely. Maybe he just compels you to kind of, you know, be okay. Stop doing some stuff, but don't stop doing it all. But we see in this passage that God is very serious about sin. He's very serious about sin. He hates sin because it's against everything that he stands for. Or perhaps your view of God has changed to the point where he's always condemning you, always pointing out every single flaw, and you're trying to just get away from this God. Both of these are incorrect views of God. Are we beginning to forget him? This is why we meet together here. This is why we go to Bible study. This is why we talk to one another about God so we don't forget who he is. Because if we forget that, will begin to compromise. And that leads us to the second question. Are we compromising in our relationship with God? We're called to be holy and separate from this world. And of course, and I say this a lot when I I speak, but this is always more subtle than we think it is. 
It's not necessarily going and doing the, the big sin that we think of in our minds. It sometimes can be subtle. I, we recently did an intensive on entertainment and how it's affecting our culture and that my generation and the generation below and, and, and some older is, is the entertainment generation. It's the generation that's driven by the question is, how will this entertain me? We come to church with that attitude. We go to uni with that attitude. We go everywhere we go with the mindset of, how is this going to entertain me? Phones, social media, video games, movies, nothing wrong with those in and of themselves. But when they become at the drive of our life, when they distract us from the living God, they become a problem. But I think we see these things as neutral And it's a subtle thing. It's as simple as choosing to engage in these things rather than God, looking at God, rather than coming to church, rather than whatever it may be. Is this a problem in your life? But perhaps for us, and I think the biggest way all throughout history that the church has struggled to be distinct is in this way of sexual sin. It's so, it's so hard. It's, so, it's everywhere these days, in your home, in your workplace. The temptation is everywhere. But we must be distinct. We must be a distinct people in this place. So whether it's pornography or simply your thought life, we must turn away from these things. God calls us to turn away from these things because don't miss it, they will lead to our slavery. We will serve them rather than God. It's just what we do as people. We will always serve something. Are we compromising as individuals and as a church? We need to confess these things to God. They're unacceptable. And you see that in this passage. And so God allows this nation Israel to be taken captive. And again, you might think that that's harsh, but I think God sometimes lets us go with our sin in the sense that then we may realize just how destructive it is. So you actually see God's love in this, in this giving Israel over to this captive nation, this nation who takes captive of them. Why does he do that? In the hope that they may realize their oppression and call out to him, that they may cry out to the Lord. We see his love in that. And that's what happens, looking at verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So this is actually a gracious act of God. And you see God's absolute mercy here that Israel cries out, not even necessarily in repentance, just because they feel the the terribleness of their situation. They don't know what to do, so they remember Yahweh. They call out to him. And the beautiful picture here is here that even though the people forgot, God did not forget. God did not forget them, but he raises up a deliverer. And I hope you get this picture of God's mercy here, his absolute mercy to his people. And so we get to meet here the first judge. His name's Othniel. He's Caleb's younger brother. He's raised up and he's given the spirit of the Lord. He, he rallies together the Israelites and he takes over the enemy, the enemy oppressors and frees Israel. And then at the end of this um, section it says, and so the land had rest for 40 years and then Othniel, the son, Othniel died. 
And so we don't have time to go through all of this section because we really want to get through to the next chunk of verses. But the point of this passage is to show that really Othniel is the ideal judge. He does everything he's supposed to do. He's raised up, he's got the Spirit of God, he takes back the nation of Israel. He's the perfect judge. You don't see any flaws in him, you don't see any extra details that make you worry. But what we'll see is from here on out, every single judge for the rest of judges has some issues, gets a bit more messy, a bit more complicated. And so the writers here are trying to show you this is what it should have been like with the judges, but then we get into the next section. And so God deals graciously, he frees Israel, they have rest in the land for a certain time, and then we get into this next section, and it's quite a long section, but it reads really like a James Bond movie. Um, So we're going to read from verse 12 and go through to the end of 31. But as we read, don't just read and think about other things, read and engage with the text. Try picture this in your mind, what's happening. Well, there's some bits you probably don't want to picture, but try to picture the bits you want to picture in your mind. So here's what it says, starting from verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented this tribute to the king, Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. And then Ehud went out onto the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down to him, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. 
After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Quite a story, right? Quite a a full-on intense passage. And you probably got an idea of what you don't want to picture in your mind from that passage. But it kind of sets us up. Israel once again fails. And And it says that. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the idea is here to get this picture of an Israel who have been graciously saved by God and then they deliberately go and fall and sin again. And once again, what does God do? His anger is kindled and this time it says he gathers up the nations to attack Israel, to take them captive. And this time it's even worse because they actually take over a city of the Israelites and the oppression is for 18 years. And then what does happen? They cry out to the Lord again. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If I was God, I probably would be like, no, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. You cry out, I rescue you, sin again. You can just stay in slavery for another 20 years. But thankfully, I'm not God. God was so gracious here, and he actually rescues them again. This passage is trying to show you something about God and his character. And so he raises up this new deliverer, and his name is Ehud, or Ehud. I don't know how you say it, I'm just happy it's not Cushan Rishathayim. But there is a few interesting things about this new deliverer. So verse 2 makes, no, verse 15, sorry, makes two comments about this man. So firstly, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, it might seem like an insignificant point, but I think there's two reasons he includes this. Firstly, Benjamin is the smallest tribe in Israel. So kind of the insignificant tribe, in a sense. But also, if you look at what Benjamin does in the book of Judges, they're pretty dodgy in some of their things they do. They don't get a good rap overall. So the idea is here that he's from the smallest tribe and probably a bit of a questionable tribe at this point. And then there's another thing we'll come back to in a minute. But it also says that Ehud was left-handed. Now this seems like an odd thing when you read over it. Why would they mention his left-handedness? But there's actually two really important things that you don't see uh, as you read the text. Who here is left-handed? Hands up. Okay, a few. So most of you would have been seen as deformed people back in Israel's time. Because it was an unnatural thing. It wasn't considered normal. It wasn't considered good. It was considered almost to be like a deformity. But what's more is, the word in the Hebrew here actually says that he was impeded on the right hand. So not only was he left-handed, but he was also, his right hand didn't work properly. His right arm didn't work properly. And so you get this picture of this deformed guy from the smallest tribe, questionable tribe. But then one step further, does anyone know what Benjamin means? The tribe of Benjamin means son of the right hand. So you have this irony here of Ehud from the son of the right hand who's left-handed and can't use his right hand. And so the writer is trying to build you this picture that this is an unlikely choice. This is an unusual choice. It's almost a humorous choice. Why would God choose this left-handed guy from the right-handed tribe? A very unexpected choice. Now, we obviously can't go through this whole story bit by bit because we'll be here way too long. But I just want to emphasize a few things in this story. So Ehud kind of gets this 
plan ready, this assassination attempt. And it's a pretty bold plan. Like, there's a lot of things that could go wrong with this plan. There's a lot of things that could go wrong. He gets this dagger, he hides it on his right leg, which is again significant because people would have hid their weapons on their left leg. So this is perhaps why the, the, the soldiers didn't realize that he had a weapon on him. He hides it on his right leg and everything is prepared. He's given a tribute to take to the king of, Eg, uh, king of Moab, whose name is Eglon. And we get one description of this guy, that he is very fat. Not the most flattering thing that you could be said about you. But again, the Bible always has a reason for putting these details in. And the reason for this is to show the kind of man he was. Not many people were overweight back in those times. The point of it is to show the kind of lifestyle he was living, being served by others, not even going out to war with his people, but being served. And the idea is to picture this idolatrous man, this sinful man that Ehud was going to visit. And so he brings this tribute to him. And then once he, t- he, he turns to go and then turns around and says, I have a secret message for you. And the king kind of gets excited, like, oh, this may be from like the false gods or something. That's maybe what he thought. So he sends out his guards, which would usually be unusual, but think about it, left-handed, deformed, right-hand guy, probably not too worried that he's going to do anything to me. Probably not that concerned. So he sends out his guards, his plans all falling into place perfectly, and getting the king alone in his roof chamber, which kind of is like bathroom slash other room, so that's what it is. And then um, he pulls out his knife quickly, leans in and stabs the king. And we get these gritty details, and you think, why does the Bible have to include these details about the blade getting stuck in his stomach and the dung coming out? It's like, oh, you know, come on. But there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this. As I said, the Bible includes these things for a purpose. So we get this picture of this king lying dead on the ground, and Ehud escapes. The guards don't even come in to check if he's okay. They says that they wait outside the room, thinking that he's going to the bathroom, and you can probably imagine the smell. They probably thought that's why. And it says they wait till they are embarrassed. How long is that? How long do you wait for someone in the bathroom? I don't know. But it must have been quite a while because they waited till they were embarrassed. And then they go in, find that he is dead. Meanwhile, Ehud has gone all the way back to the Israelites. He blows his trumpet and then he cries out this very important verse. Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So Ehud realizes that everything that he's done has not been by his own cunning, his own brilliance, his his master plan that he has. It's been God who has been with him. And this is the purpose of these really gross details that the Bible puts here. It's trying to show that this left-handed, deformed, from the smallest tribe guy can defeat this massive army that's taken over Israel, but not only defeat them, but humiliate them. The Israelites would have read this story with laughter about this king who's on the floor, his guards are outside waiting for him to finish on the bathroom and then they go in and find him. That would have been hilarious. And the point is to show that because God was with Ehud, he had victory. And not just victory, a humiliating victory for the enemy. And you get this great contrast between the nation of Israel 
who had spent much of the book of Joshua conquering nation to nation to nation, who can't even defeat this army who takes over them. And it takes one man, when God is with him, no matter who he was, to win the whole nation back. That's what God can do. And we see what Israel can't do. And so it's this really amazing story of God's grace and mercy to save the nation of Israel through this unexpected hero, a nation that did not deserve it. And finally, we'll read just the last verse here, verse 31. It's very short, but it it does add something to the story when you learn a bit about it. So verse 31 says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, I'd be pretty annoyed if I was Shamgar that he only got one verse for what he did. 600 Philistines with an ox goad. That's pretty impressive. I don't know how he managed it. But the point here is that if you notice, this, this judge doesn't fit the pattern at all. You don't see what tribe he's from. You don't see what, when Israel cried out to the Lord. You don't see how long it was for. All these things. In fact, Shamgar never dies, apparently. You don't see when he dies. All the other judges, it says they died. But in chapter 4, verse 1, we read about how Ehud dies. So Shamgar doesn't fit the pattern. And, and you kind of learn why, I think, when you do a little research behind what um, Shamgar, the son of Anath, actually means. Anath is one of the three Canaanite gods who they worshipped. So there's two suggestions then. Either this guy was not even an Israelite, he was from some other nation, and he saved Israel inconsequentially, in the fact that he had his own vendettas and God was using that to save Israel. Or, two, he was an Israelite, but he was from a very questionable family who were worshipping false gods, not necessarily that he was, but from a very questionable family named after one of the false gods. Do you see how this adds to an unexpected hero, another unexpected person who's raised up by God, even at the, and it suggests that it was at the same time, while Ehud was taking the nation of Israel to save them from this oppressor, there was another oppressor, the Philistines, coming who God also saved at the same time. And so you see this picture of God's grace, he's not only saving Israel in one place, he's saving them in two places, and they probably don't even know about it very well. God's grace is highlighted. And so I think that there's three really important things that we can get from this passage. Three really important things. First of all, it teaches us something about us. It teaches us something about us. And we already highlighted this. It teaches us about our forgetfulness and our need to be a separate and holy nation. And really, Judges stresses this time and time again. We must be constantly asking our hearts the question, am I compromising? Are there things in my life that I need to seriously get rid of and take whatever step is possible to do that? Even if it's going to be awkward, even if I have to ask for help, we must not be like Israel and forget. So we learn that about ourselves. And and the second two things we learn about God. I hope you can see in this passage the clear point that our God is a redeemer. Our God is a redeemer. 
That's part of who he is. He raises up these judges, despite Israel's constant rebellion and forgetfulness, despite their lack of repentance and change of heart, he saves them. He saves them. Like, just think about that for a second, what God does here. And of course, this isn't just a picture of Israel. If we think about it, this is a picture of humanity. Ever since creation, we have rejected God. We've forgotten what he's like. We've believed the lies of the evil one, and we've gone and done our own thing. We've made ourselves the God. But what does God do? He doesn't reject us, but he sends for us a perfect deliverer. A perfect deliverer, Jesus. He sends Jesus who is in every way different to Ehud and Shamgar. He is perfect. But there is one thing they have in common. Jesus, like Ehud and like Shamgar, was an unexpected deliverer. He was not someone the people of Israel were looking for. He was born in a stable amongst the animals, raised as a carpenter from the nowhere town of Bethlehem, and then taken to a cross. God hanging on a cross, can you get any more unexpected than that? But this was God's plan to save us. And this is the beautiful thing of this passage, because Jesus was not like Ehud in in the sense of what he did. You see, Ehud and Shamgar, they both die, but Jesus does not. He dies, but he overcomes death. And this was the problem. Israel needed a deliverer who wouldn't die. And you see this. Every time the judge died, Israel went back to their own sins. But we serve a deliverer who has overcome death, that we can always look to. Unlike Ehud and Shamgar, he doesn't just provide a partial delivery through taking up the sword. What does he do? He dies on a cross to take and deal with the biggest problem. Not an enemy army. The problem in our hearts. He takes away our sin. This is our beautiful deliverer that God, our Redeemer God, has raised up. And church, we need to look to him. We need to look to Christ. It's all about him. Whether you're compromising, whether you're making mistakes, you're going down this path of forgetfulness, rebellion, slavery, you need to turn to him. He's the one who's taken your sin and dealt with it. But even if you're not in that place, we all have things that we need to take to Jesus. And we just need to keep looking at him so that we don't become forgetful. We must keep looking to the character of our God and our perfect deliverer, Christ. Only that will keep us from forgetting and walking in sin. It's not that you need to do a better quiet time, necessarily. It's not that you need to come to church more or Bible study or those things. You need to get your eyes on Jesus. You need to understand him. You need to grow that relationship. And that comes through reading God's word. That comes through praying. That comes through spending time with people. But that needs to be your goal, not to look better or break this sin necessarily it's about looking at him and those things will happen because of that 
So we learn about God being a redeemer, but we also learn something else about God, and I think it's just as important. We learn here about God that God can accomplish his purposes through anyone. God can accomplish his purposes through anyone. So we get this wonderful picture of a man from a, nowhere tri- from a, no- from a tribe that was very questionable, a left-handed man, deformed, not really considered of doing much, and yet in his weakness, God used him. Why? Because the only important thing was that God was with him. God was with him. God's spirit was with him. And he used him to defeat the enemy nations. Not just to win, but to humiliate. And the story here for us is that we're all a left-handed people. We all come into this Christian life with limps and, and problems and it's so easy to let that overwhelm us. We're so, we spend so much time looking in here and going, man, why would God choose this person to do something through? I've got so many problems. Just this week I had that come to my mind. Why on earth would God use me with all my struggles? But that's not the point. We serve this unexpected saviour who has dealt with our sin, which means we can become an unexpected people. An unexpected people that though we are weak, he is strong. He is the one who is working through us by the power of his spirit. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 2, 26-31. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption redemption so that it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord can you see here that our weakness is not the problem in fact our weakness is what's brought us to christ the important thing is that god is with us and he can use us and so the challenge here is to get our eyes off us whoever you are in this room whatever week you've had whatever issues you have in your life get your eyes off you That's not the point. If you belong to Christ here, his spirit is within you and he can use you to achieve his purposes. No matter what that that looks like, no matter how scary that is, this is what we need to remember. Church, let's look to him. Let's continually look to our perfect deliverer. This is what Judges shows us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that despite our forgetfulness and, and sinfulness, that you are a redeemer, God. That, that you sent for us a perfect deliverer in Christ who didn't just who didn't win a battle for us in the sense of going out and, and picking up the sword, but he won the ultimate battle on the cross by dying for my sins and our sins and taking that upon himself. 
Thank you that you died, that you rose again and you defeated death. And you've given us new life. When we look to you and believe in you, Lord, help us, help us to throw off the things that we need to throw off. To not compromise, but Lord, to look to you. To recognize that your spirit is within us to give us power to do this, but also power to live our lives for your glory. Lord, forgive us when we get entangled in our own weaknesses, when we focus too much on how incapable we are. But Lord, we serve a God who is completely capable. And so, Father, keep our eyes there. Keep our eyes on the unexpected Saviour Christ, who through weakness achieved ultimate victory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.